I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to Talking Golf History, in a special episode of Golf from the Fringe, the birth and death of golf in America, the story of Harleston Green. This story was researched, written, and narrated by Connor T. Lewis and the Society of Golf Historians. Prologue. Before we jump into our show today, I thought I'd take a moment to tell you why I thought this story was important enough to share with you. For those listeners who have been with the show over the past three seasons, our Golf from the Fringe episodes represent golf stories you aren't likely to hear anywhere else, and certainly not in-depth reporting by the mainstream media. They are often lost or overlooked stories that I believe are remarkable. They are also stories that I feel need to be told in the narrative form. The story of Harleston Green and the South Carolina Golf Club fits this mold to a T. It represents the birth and death of American golf and its location in the shadow of the largest slave port in American history. The history of America's first golf course and first golf club have mostly been forgotten, but I thought in light of our current environment, and the Black Lives Matter movement, not to mention the PGA of America being held in Charleston, South Carolina, at the Ocean Course at Kiwa Island, it was time to tell the full story of Harleston Green. So without further ado, the Society of Golf Historians presents The Birth and Death of Golf in America, The Story of Harleston Green. The story you're about to hear is both an origin story and an obituary. This is the story of the match that when struck could have and perhaps should have lit the fire of golf in America 100 years before the establishment of the St. Andrews Golf Club in New York in 1888. Sit back and listen to this little tale that helps rewrite our golf history books. We start in the beginning with the first English settlement in America in the year of 1670 in what is now known as the state of South Carolina. In 1671, two of Charleston's founding fathers, John Cumming and John Hughes, applied for and received grants from the Crown of England for 319 acres of land in what is now considered part of Charleston, South Carolina. The land was rural and would continue to be undeveloped for another 100 years. It was a sprawling landscape of grass, wildflowers, marshes, and creeks. Nobody could have fathomed it at the time, but there amongst the sprawling nothingness of open fields of windswept wild grass, there in the shadow of what would become the metropolis of Charleston, sat a piece of ground that would become the cradle of American golf. 1670 also served as a historical marker for the horrific actions of our American forefathers. In 1670, the British citizens of Charleston 
established what would become the largest slave trading port in the United States. The first slaves sold in Charleston were not men and women from Africa. No, the first men and women sold into slavery out of Charleston were the people who were indigenous to this country. Between the year of 1670 and 1675, as many as 50,000 Native Americans were sold into slavery out of the slave markets of Charleston and shipped to the states of Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. The slave trade of Charleston started with Native Americans, but within years, Charleston would become the hub of the African slave trade in the New World. In short time, Charleston would become the largest slave port in what would become the United States of America. How large? Historians believe that 80% of African Americans can trace an ancestor to the slave port of Charleston, South Carolina. The story I share with you today about the genesis of golf in America is not about slavery and its inherent evil, but I would be historically ignorant not to frame the story in the proper context. As I spin this tale of the early golf history in the United States, let us not forget the ugliness that took place in this time period on the very soil where golf would soon be born in America. Golf's first known appearance in the United States, or what would become the United States, came about on June 29, 1739. In 2014, Dr. David Purdy of the University of Edinburgh uncovered a bill of lading showing golf clubs being shipped to Charleston, South Carolina. The clubs and feathery balls, worth one pound and 15 shillings, were shipped by Andrew Wallace out of the port of Leith to his brother William Wallace in Charleston, South Carolina. As it turns out, William Wallace was a member of the St. Andrews Society, dating back four years prior to 1735. How proper is it that a St. Andrews man should be known as the first known golfer to inhabit the soon-to-be United States of America. Let me put that date in perspective for the Americans listening. America had its first known golfer when George Washington was only seven years old and only a couple months removed from the myth that he chopped down his father's cherry tree. Mr. Wallace must have enjoyed hitting a feathery ball around the city of Charleston with his new golf clubs but the enjoyment of his leisurely sport would not last. Two months after receiving his new golf equipment, the city of Charleston was rocked by the Stono Slave Rebellion. On September 9th, 1739, a well-educated black man by the name of Jemmy convinced 20 of his fellow slaves to rebel and make an escape for Spanish-occupied Florida, which at the time was an anti-slavery state. That Wednesday morning, Jemmy and 20 other slaves recruited another 60 slaves as they made their way by foot gathering weapons to rebel against their white masters and fight for their freedom. Unfortunately for Jemmy and his fellow freedom fighters, their story didn't have a happy ending. The plantation owners banded together and put together an army to go after Jemmy and his fellow compatriots. The end result was nothing less than slaughter, with more than 40 slaves killed. The fallout was immediate and long-lasting. Any surviving slaves from Jemmy's rebellion were either murdered or stripped away from their families and sold on the slave markets in Charleston. The very next year in 1740, the legislature, in response to the rebellion, approved the Negro Act 
1740, which made life for the slaves of South Carolina even worse by restricting slave assembly, prohibiting their education, and controlling their movement. From a historical perspective, prior to the American Revolution, the Stono Slave Rebellion was the largest slave rebellion in the history of the United States. Three years would pass when the city of Charleston saw the next injection of golf, this time to a man by the name of David Dees, the second known golfer to inhabit the United States. In 1743, a massive shipment of 432 feathery golf balls and 96 wooden clubs were shipped to David Dees of Charleston. In an era where five to seven clubs were common, Dees had purchased enough clubs to accommodate as many as 19 players. But to me, the most outstanding factoid to ponder of this purchase is the 432 feathery balls included in the shipment. The cost was considerable, but the time it would have taken to make these golf balls is breathtaking. Consider this. The average feathery ball maker could only make four feathery balls a day. The process would include boiling a top hat's worth of goose feathers, then stitching up a leather ball casing with a small opening in the stitching. The golf ball maker would then push a top hat's worth of feathers into a ball casing roughly the size of a modern golf ball. The process of making these feathers could be lethal. Respiratory issues were common, but another hazard was the apparatus necessary for pushing the last remaining feathers into the ball casing. Often, feathery ball makers would use a leather harness to strap an elongated, sharp spike to their chest. In doing so, the ball maker could use their own weight to force the remaining feathers into the casing. However, as you can imagine, Putting your weight onto a rusty metal spike and pushing down on a round object is a recipe for accident, some of which were fatal. Then there is the sheer number of featheries to consider, 432 balls, when the average ball maker could only make four balls a day, meaning this shipment represented 108 days of labor. But it's actually even more outstanding because in 1740, the average workday was 15 hours, meaning that approximately 1,620 work hours went into making these 432 feathery balls, or the equivalent of 202 modern working days. In today's value, using the average wage of the American worker, those feathery balls would be worth $24,000, or better said, $54 per ball without any markup or profit. That's expensive, but in 1740, it was even more expensive. A single feathery ball in 1740 could cost you as much as the driver in your playset. Featheries were literally worth their weight in gold. Mr. Dees didn't buy these clubs and balls on a whim. This was an investment, and likely for a fairly large group, of golfers. Now, how can I put this in historical perspective? The shipment of golf clubs for as many as 19 players and 432 featheries, which we already established represented over a hundred days of work, were shipped in 1743. When they arrived in Charleston, the third oldest golf club in the world, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers 
had yet to be established, and it would be another year until golf had its first ever written rules of the game. In 1744, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers and the first 13 rules of golf were established at Leith Links, literally a hundred or so steps from the port of Leith, where both the clubs and featheries for William Wallace and David Dees had been shipped to Charleston. While we have no written record of the game of golf being played in the New World, nor any idea where in Charleston the game was played in the 1740s, the circumstantial evidence tells us that a group of people in Charleston were playing golf in the mid-1700s. In 1759, another written report, this one being of Andrew Johnston returning to Charleston from Scotland with 12 golf clubs and feathery golf balls. With Mr. Johnson, we now have our first three known golfers in America, William Wallace, David Dees, and Andrew Johnston, in the colony of South Carolina, with a total population somewhere around 50,000 people, with 20,000 to 25,000 of these inhabitants being slaves. In 1760, a man by the name of John Harleston inherited the sum of 360 acres that John Cumming and John Hughes had received a grant by the Crown to own in 1670. Mr. Harleston inherited the land from his uncle and aunt, John and Afra Cumming. In 1767, John Harleston petitioned the Crown to extend the roads to his newly acquired land, and upon the acceptance of that petition, the borough of Harleston was officially created in 1770, with 160 lots and a couple of green spaces. By 1770, South Carolina had become the second largest colony in the 13 colonies, with a population of 75,000 people. It is estimated that as many as 60% of those inhabitants were African-American slaves. Five years into building the borough of Harleston, the American Revolution began in 1775, an eight-year war with the United Kingdom over the independence of our country. Charleston was front and center in the battle with England, as it was a key shipping port for transatlantic trade. And in 1780, a battle named the Siege of Charleston occurred when Sir Cotton and Lord Cornwallis defeated the Americans at Charleston. The defeat was a massive blow to America's hopes for independence, and up until 1862, it was the largest American military force surrender in time of war. Three years would pass since the Siege of Charleston, but on September 3, 1783, the American Revolution had concluded and America had won its independence. With the brutal war with England behind them, the people of Charleston must have wanted a retreat from the horrors of war. And in 1786, the borough of Harleston officially established the first known golf course in America, which it named Harleston Green. Harleston Green, much like the courses of Scotland, sat on public land. It was public space, and in that light, one could argue that Harleston Green was not only the first golf course in America, but the first public golf course in America, predating Van Cortlandt Park by 109 years. Though unlike Van Cortlandt Park, in the era of the feathery ball, golf was a game for the very rich, and certainly not a game for the average American. To put that date in perspective, 
In 1786, Mozart's first opera, The Marriage of Figaro, premiered in Vienna. Famous frontiersman Davy Crockett was born, and the United States Mint was established to replace state-issued coins with a national currency. As for Harleston Green, it wasn't a large tract of land, weighing in at just about 25 acres. Harleston Green likely weighed in heavily on the design principles of Leith Links, which sat on nearly double the acreage and consisted of five holes of 400 yards in length each. Harleston Green, much like Leith Links, certainly had less than nine holes of play, and it is highly likely it modeled its much older sibling adopting a five-hole loop, which golfers would play twice to complete their round. The longest possible hole at Harleston Green would have measured 520 yards, which would cover the span of the northwest corner of the property to the southeast. But again, like Leith Links, one could assume that adopted a model and its holes played east to west, which would create five or so holes well under 400 yards in length. There are no known maps of the courses routing that exist today, nor do we have any records of the golfer's scores. I, with the help of Joe McDonnell and Evalue 18, had given the listener a proposed routing based on the buildings that were on the course in 1788. Our proposed routing in 1786, the first hole 218 yards, second hole 382 yards, third hole 131 yards, fourth hole 240 yards, and the fifth hole 243 yards for a grand total of 1,214 yards. Two years after the establishment of America's first golf course, on October 15, 1788, the first golf club was established on American soil. The South Carolina Golf Club, which played its golf on Harleston Green, making the South Carolina Golf Club not the Royal Calcutta Golf Club of India, established 41 years later, the first golf club to be established outside of the United Kingdom. How old would the South Carolina Golf Club be in relation to the world's oldest golf clubs? By some accounts, it would have been the 10th oldest golf club in the world, which is remarkable considering golf has been played since the 1400s in Scotland. The South Carolina Golf Club lasted for about a decade, which doesn't sound like much, but when I presented this information to my friend and fellow golf historian Stephen Proctor, he put it in perspective. In his words, 10 years is impressive. If you think about it, it is the time span of the birth of the Open Championship to young Tom Morris claiming three Opens and retiring the championship belt. For 10 years, the South Carolina Golf Club repeatedly posted their gatherings in the local newspaper, usually announcing an annual anniversary tournament followed by drinks at a local coffee shop. From these clippings, we learn the names of three more golfers. In 1796, we know that the president of the South Carolina Golf Club was James Gairdner. William Blacklock was the VP, and William Milligan was the club treasurer and secretary. These three men are the first known members of a golf club in America. Oddly enough, by October 1799, the newspaper stories of Harleston Green and the South Carolina Golf Club disappear, and with it, all traces of America's first golf course and first golf club. 
There's been some speculation by golf historians as to why the course and club disappeared. A popular theory puts the onus on then-President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, in the Embargo Act of 1807, which was Jefferson's idea of punishing the United Kingdom for its interference of the United States' imports and exports during the war. The Embargo Act of 1807 was a prelude to the War of 1812, which ultimately ended as a stalemate, but not without thousands of lives lost, and eventually, in 1814, the fire that burnt the White House to the ground. I used to subscribe to the embargo theory. I mean, who doesn't want to blame a president for killing the game of golf in America? But I think the theory runs a little late on our timeline, when you consider that the South Carolina Golf Club went quiet eight years prior to the embargo. I think the explanation of the loss of Harleston Green is one of a population boom. From 1740 to 1800, South Carolina's population increased sevenfold. The birth and death of Harleston Green started when John Harleston received permission from the Crown to expand Charleston streets into the new borough of Harleston. With that growth, the green space of Harleston Green was born. But with that continued growth, land became a precious commodity into the urban expansion of Charleston. Even in the earliest days of golf, the course had homes upon its property. And I believe, as the city grew, the course shrunk until it disappeared altogether. Harleston Green sat in an area still known as Harleston. Its northeastern property line is currently marked by the Addlestone Public Library on the southwest corner of Calhoun and Cumming. The course ran as far west as Rutledge Street, with its southern boundary being Bull Street. There is only one leftover landmark from Harleston Green's early days. After researching the history of every building on the property, there is at least one original building in existence. The home of Vice President of the South Carolina Golf Club, William Blacklock, still sits on the land once known as Harleston Green. The home is now owned by the College of Charleston on 18 Bull Street in Charleston, South Carolina. It is the lone landmark of golf's entry in the United States of America. So what are the takeaways from our story today? Golf was played in America as early as 1739, and in a span of 60 years between 1739 and 1799, golf had a presence in Charleston, South Carolina. In 1786, America established its first ever golf course. In 1788, the first ever golf club outside of the United Kingdom was established in Charleston, and in 1899, it mysteriously disappeared along with the course. We have the names of at least six of America's forefather golfers, and there is a strong possibility that the first caddy in America was likely an African slave. Golf would appear in Savannah, Georgia, shortly after the establishment of Harleston Green and the South Carolina Golf Club, but it too met with a mysterious ending around the turn of the 1800s. It would take another 80 years for golf to gain its foothold, with clubs like Oakhurst Links, Foxburg, and the St. Andrews Golf Club in 1888, with the likes of men like John Reed, Alexander Finlay, Thomas Bendelow, C.B. McDonald, Harry Varden, and Donald Ross, the growth of the game in America became an unstoppable force, which weathered two world wars and a Great Depression. 
The history of golf in America starts in our cradle of golf, the city of Charleston, South Carolina. On a personal note, I can't tell you how difficult I found it to tell this story. On one hand, we have a story that should be celebrated, and on the other, it's impossible to ignore the period atrocities that run parallel to this tale of golf. Unlike other golf history stories in America, even stories of racism and discrimination, this one is told prior to the Civil War, and in the background, under a mile as the crow flies from the green of Harleston, set one of the largest slave ports in the world, and a market for the sale of human beings. It's not hard to imagine our American forefathers enjoying our favorite pastime, in the echo of the crack of a whip and the muffled mumblings of an auctioneer selling off a human. Golf in America has had an ugly history of discrimination. And in this season and future ones, we will share some of these uncomfortable stories, some that end with triumph and others that end with tragedy. I know some of you won't be pleased that I dug up our ugly past to tell this golf story. But history is often ugly, and I feel we need to view it in the true color and context of its time. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. If you will oblige me, this message is for my kids. It's not lost on me that as I record these stories that they will likely outlive me, and that you three will be able to listen to them well after I pass on from this world. I thought I'd take a moment to tell you all how much I love you, and how much it has been a pleasure to be your dad. Madeline, you are so pure of heart, and one of the hardest workers I know. Your kindness for other people has always amazed me. Jackson, the best compliment I can give you is I see so much of myself in you. Your laughter and your dumb jokes are infectious, and I often marvel at your wonderful imagination. Charlotte, you're one of the sweetest and toughest girls I know. You, like your sister, have a big heart and truly care about those people around you. I love the way you see the world, and I have zero doubt that you are the most persistent person I have ever met. I know all three of you will encounter tough times in your lives, and I also know that all three of you are strong enough to overcome them. You all have the ability to be great in this world, and the capacity to care for others and each other. Of all the things I have ever done, and will ever do, Being your dad has been the greatest reward of my life. I will love you for eternity.